Thanks for coming tonight. We're excited for a launch of Life Groups, excited to dive into Ephesians. So as we begin, I have a question. What is the greatest gift that you've ever given? Not the greatest gift you've ever received, the greatest gift you've ever given. That's a rhetorical question. I don't need any hands in the air, otherwise you'll be patting yourself on the back in front of the whole group, right? But if you are a married or engaged man, I know the greatest gift you've ever given. And it lives on the left ring finger of your fiance or your husband. Did you know that the average wedding ring, engagement ring today costs, any guesses? $6,000. Luke Vandenberg nailed it in the front. Do you have something you're holding out on us, Luke? Or Six grand. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. Now, I don't know if you spent that much. That's not really the point. But I want you to picture two different young men. Both are hypothetical. I want you to picture two different young men. Here's the first. Walks into the jewelry store. He knows it's time to get engaged. Has his hands in his pockets. His head's kind of down. Shoulders are back, kind of shrugged. The salesperson comes up and says, sir, can I, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I guess it's time to get engaged. I talked to my girlfriend. She said, you must spend at least $4,000 on me. So he looked at the salesperson and said, you know, this is my budget. Give me the best ring you can for $4,000 and not a penny more. Don't tell my girlfriend this, but I can think of 4,000 other things I'd rather do with that four grand. How long do you think that wedding's going to last? Or that marriage, rather. Probably not that long. Contrast that with another young man. Walks into the jewelry store. You know, if he had his Apple Watch on, you wouldn't even want to know what his heart rate was. It was high. He was feeling all the feels from... Like, I'm about to vomit excitement to I'm about to vomit nerves, right? You know that feeling? And he has all of the money that he can find sitting in his checking account. It's $4,000 and, you know, a couple cents. And he walks in and he knows his budget. It's four grand. He talks to the salesperson and he spends hours pouring over the cabinets, looking through the glass, holding rings in his hands. And it, it finally, he finds the perfect ring. And when he takes that piece of plastic and swipes his debit card, he has never been so poor in his life as he has $1.54 to his name. And he walks away and that ring is literally burning a hole in his pocket. Can't wait to give it to his girlfriend. And he has that conversation with his future father-in-law. You know the one where he brings out his guns and says, you better take care of my, my daughter, right? That conversation. And he survives that, right? And he plans this elaborate day goes through everything, right? They, they go to the place of their first date. They listen to their favorite song. They have their favorite meal. And, and he takes her to the place where everyone in Wausau gets engaged. Top of Rib Mountain. <laughs> Lays out the blanket, has the candles. The violinist is over. And the, there's the photographer in the trees. And he gets down on one knee, tears streaming down his face and says, will you marry me? Quite the difference, isn't it? See, that young man in that instant, even though he'd given the most expensive gift he could imagine, he understood the truth of what Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if I had to guess, you've given some good gifts. You probably have received some good gifts. And if you know Christ, you've received a greater gift than a $6,000 uh, engagement ring. You've received a greater gift than an all-expense-paid vacation to Hawaii, though that sounds nice. If you know Christ, you've, ex you've received a greater gift than a 2023 
Jeep Wrangler Rubicon 392, which MSRP is at $85,000. See, if you know Christ, you've been given a greater gift than a fiance, a spouse, a raise, a bonus, a new puppy. If you know Christ, you've received the greatest imaginable gift. But what blows my mind in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God experiences a joy that we can't even put into words when he gives those good gifts to us. The spiritual gifts that we receive in Christ exceed any material gift that we could ever imagine. That's what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 1 tonight. So I have a caveat. Tonight I'm talking to those of us in the room who are Christians. Those of us who have placed our faith in Christ who believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. That's what I'm talking to tonight. Now, if you walked in the door and you don't know Jesus yet, you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, two things. First, I am so glad that you're here. And second, I hope and pray that by the end of the night, when you discover the reality of the incredible gifts that God has given us, that you will be so utterly compelled to say yes to Jesus. But I just want to throw it out there tonight. When I use the word you, I'm talking to Christians, followers of Christ. So as we dive into Ephesians 1, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be starting in verse 3 tonight. It's important for us to remember the background that we talked about two weeks ago. The church in Ephesus, they loved the Apostle Paul. He was their founding pastor. He was there for two and a half years as their pastor. And for a church that was in, in, in its infancy, that felt like an eternity. So then after Paul had been there two and a half years, it had been seven years since he'd seen since he'd stepped foot in Ephesus, five years since he'd seen the elders in another town. Felt like an eternity since the church had seen Paul, and they missed Pastor Paul dearly. But since Paul had left, you have to remember some of the things that were bubbling up within the church. The town of Ephesus was the devil's playground. Sorcery, witchcraft, demonic activity was rampant in Ephesus more than any other city in the area. At the same time, there was Artemis worship and this idolatry, even this sexualized uh, religious immorality was rampant throughout the city. And then within the church, there's these false teachers that start to rise up in the church, and Timothy's doing everything they can to try to stop the division, but all he wants is Paul to come back. All he wants is Paul to set everybody straight once and for all and try to get rid of the division that's happening within the church. And that's when Tychicus comes, hand delivers, and reads out loud Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, with that background, if you were Paul, where would you start? How would you begin your letter? Would you start with a lecture? Like, come on, get your, get your act together. Or would you start with maybe stories of all the good things that God did in Ephesus? Or would you start with your resume saying, you better listen to me because of all the things that I've done? That's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with God's good gifts. Look at verse 3. I'm just going to read the third, third verse. He says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pause there. Now, if we read Ephesians 3, or 1, 3 through 14 in the Greek text, it's one sentence. This is one giant run-on sentence. If you read it in your translation, I'm reading out ESV, yours probably does the same thing. The translators actually put periods in because it's obnoxious to have that long of a run-on sentence. But that's not how Paul writes. He has this giant run-on sentence, and verse 3 is the main idea. It's the big idea that sets the trajectory 
for the rest of the verses that follow all the way up until verse 14. And he starts, really, it's a command. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a declaration. Paul's saying, because of what God's done, because of the gifts that he's given you, it's time for us to praise God. We have to worship God. It's not a suggestion, but this is a command. God must be blessed. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has blessed us. That's a past tense verb, something that happened in the past with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Those heavenly things, heavenly places, it's contrasting earth. The gifts that God gives us, they're not from here. They're not from our earthly fallen world. No, they're from outside of us. They're from the place where God resides, from God himself. And then the text says that he gives us spiritual blessings. In other words, he gives us spiritual gifts, gifts that come from the Holy Spirit. See, a spiritual blessing is the opposite of a material blessing. And the church at Ephesus, they understood material blessings. Ephesus was the wealthiest city in Asia Minor. They knew wealth and opulence and cash better than any other city in the region. But we do too, don't we? We live in one of the wealthiest countries that has ever existed. We have a level of wealth and opulence just by living in the country that we do that sets us apart from people all around the globe. We know wealth. But what happens when we have material things, good things that God has given to us? Sometimes those things take our gaze off of God and onto the gifts that he's given us. That's the temptation for Ephesus. That's the temptation for us. But it's possible the false teachers in Ephesus, it's certainly possible today that teachers take it a step farther And they encourage people, they preach to people, believe in God or believe in Jesus so he gives you what you want. It's called the prosperity gospel. What the prosperity gospel preachers say is if you have faith in Jesus, then God will give you that house. God will give you that car. God will give you that vacation. If you have enough faith, if you give enough to my ministry, then God will give you what you want. It's a false gospel. And Paul subtly is preaching against this false gospel. He helps us understand. There's a big difference between spiritual blessings and material blessings. Both are good. But what prosperity gospel preachers do is they say God's material gifts are here and his spiritual gifts are here. You know what Paul does? He inverts it completely. God's spiritual blessings, his spiritual gifts are of infinite greater worth than his material blessings. The material blessings are good. They're good things. We can praise God for them, but we need to seek after the spiritual blessings, the spiritual gifts that God gives us. And as Paul walks us through the rest of our text tonight, he outlines three gifts that we're going to identify. You could probably pick out more. We're going to pick out three. Three gifts, spiritual gifts that God gives us that are of immeasurably greater worth than material gifts that we might have. So let's find the first gift. Verse four. I'll read through verse six. Follow along. Even as he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pause there. Those three verses all center around the idea of God's election, God's choice, God's predestining us. So that's our first principle tonight if you're taking notes. Praise God because he chose us in Christ. Praise God because he chose us in Christ. To understand this passage, we need to understand a little bit of Greek, so we're going to do that a couple times tonight. Here's the first. The Greek word for chose is exelixado, where we get our word elect from. 
So we see the word elect or chose. We see the word predestined just in those three verses. Now, if I had to guess, if you've been around the church long enough, the word election and predestination come with just a little bit of baggage. Maybe you've had one of those famous fireside debates where there's someone who argues for Calvinism, maybe somebody else argues for Arminianism, maybe you subscribe to the famous position, I don't give a rip-ism. I'm not sure. <laughs> now, election, predestination, this is not a topic that I voluntarily dip my toe into, that I'm just going to bring up in a sermon just because it's fun to talk about, because it's really hard to talk about. It's confusing. But since election, since God's choice is in our text tonight, we have to dive into it. Why? Because Paul identifies God's choice as one of the greatest gifts that he's given us. So we have to try to understand it tonight. So I have three observations that I'll make on election just from our passage. And then I have four, you could call them implications, four applications uh, from what we see. So here's a quick definition. God's election, his choice is simply defined. God has chosen his children. A believer's faith in Christ is a result of God's gracious and unconditional choice. So here's our first observation about election first. And we see this right in our text. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Did you see that? This should absolutely blow your mind. God had a plan before the fullness of time, before the foundation of the world, before the earth was even here to adopt us into his family, to call us his sons and daughters, to pay the price of our sin and to pay our debt. His desire to save, it wasn't whimsical. It wasn't random. God just didn't roll the dice. He's not haphazard, nor is he a procrastinator. Even before he created the world as we know it, God knew he wanted to adopt us and to his family. Second, God chose us in love and according to his good pleasure. If you look at verse 5, the ESV says at the end of the verse, according to the purpose of his will. Sorry, ESV, that is not a good translation. A better translation would be according to the good pleasure, not purpose, good pleasure of his will. We see that he predestined us in love, right before verse 5, it brings God great joy to adopt us into his family. It makes him glad to give us the greatest imaginable gift. His adoption found its motivation in love. He delights in us. As I heard Pastor Adam recently say, God thinks higher thoughts about you than even you do. He loves you. He delights in you. The Greek word, for love is agape. I bet you've heard that before. Sometimes we describe it as unconditional love, and that's true, but it's deeper than that. There's affection behind it. Agape means affectionately seeking the greatest good for someone else. It's not transactional. It's not selfish. It's a selfless, affectionate, others-focused love. But we can also see God's motivation for his choice in the Greek word for elect, exlexado. But to understand that, we need a little bit deeper of a Greek lesson. I promise it's not that nerdy. You'll understand it. So in the English language, a verb basically has two voices. There's active voice and there's passive voice. Let me illustrate. I demolished Isaac Sutton in fantasy football this week. 
That's active voice. Passive voice would be Isaac Sutton was demolished in fantasy football this week. Now, if you took an advanced comp class in high school and you wrote in passive voice, your teacher or your professor probably docked you points and said, no, you've got to write in active voice. Now, the Greek language has active voice. It has passive voice, but it also has middle voice. That's not something we have in English. When someone speaks with middle voice, there's always a personal application. So a far better translation would be, God chose us for himself. That's what that word means. Are you starting to get the picture? God chose us for himself. He chose us in love. His love motivated his adoption. His love motivated his choice. God thinks higher thoughts about you than even you do. He desires a relationship with his children. He loves his children with a love that is beyond comprehension. Third, God's choosing of us does not eliminate our choosing of God. That comes from Romans 10. God chooses us, or do we choose God? Which is it? The answer is yes. Both. We see both in Scripture. We can't talk our way around either. I can't get around Romans 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's choice does not eliminate or reduce our need to personally respond to the gospel with faith and with repentance. How do those two things fit together? I'm not sure. It's above my pay grade. We put it in our theological mystery box. But that does not make those two things incongruent just because I can't understand them. So those are three statements about election. Here's four implications. Three come from our text, and one comes from counseling conversations in my office. Here's the first, first implication. It's right in our text. Praise God. Praise God. He chose us not because of anything that we've done. We are saved by grace through faith. We can't save ourselves. Election should remind us, God's choice should remind us that the only thing you and I bring to the table of our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. God made the first move. He reached down. He offered us forgiveness even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. One of God's greatest gifts is saying, I want you to be my kid regardless of your rebellion. He wants you and his family. Second implication, not in our text. It comes from conversations I have with you. Election should cause comfort, not concern. Here's a statement I hear all the time. I know it comes from the enemy who is trying to sideline genuine believers with a, a good doctrine. The thought goes like this. But what if I'm not chosen? What if, what if I get to the end and even though I believed in Jesus, what if I hear, depart from me, I never knew you? You ever thought that before? A lot of you have. I've talked to you. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, if you've ever believed the lie that you might not be one of the chosen ones, even though you believed in Jesus, don't miss this. There is no class of people who've cried out to Jesus for salvation. Jesus says, sorry, my family's full. That is biblically impossible. 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no one who's going to get to the end and say, well, Jesus, I, I believed in you. I placed my faith in you. I trusted you. I called out to you. And he says, sorry, my family was full. That is not the God we see in our text, who in love, with great joy, adopts us into his family. Third, God chose us with a purpose. We see that in our text. The first is adoption. Now, maybe you noticed this when I read the text. The verse doesn't say he adopted us as sons and daughters. What does it say? He adopted us as... If you're reading out the ESV, it'll say sons. That's a literal translation. So what does that mean? Does that mean that only men can be adopted into God's family? No, it does not mean that. What Paul's doing is he's playing off of a Roman metaphor, a Roman picture of adoption. What happened in the Roman government, in the Roman culture, that boys were adopted. Boys received an inheritance. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's the right thing. That's just what happened in the culture. But what would happen uh, is they, the Roman government allowed for young men to be adopted into another family. The biological father would sell his son as a slave to the adoptive dad three times. And at the end of the third transaction, the boy was completely severed from his biological family. There was no tie. He was free. That was step one. Step two is the adoptive dad would then enter in, adopt the son, and give him all of the legal rights as a son. It was through the son that the family line was passed along. It was through the son that the inheritance was passed along. So what Paul is saying is God has adopted us. Maybe a better word would be heirs or children with an inheritance. That's one of the great gifts God has given us, that he's adopted us into his family by nothing that we've done, and he's given us all of the benefits of a, child, of a child. See, in the Roman culture, even Caesars, the king, would adopt children into their family so that they could perpetuate their family line, so that they could hand-select an heir to their throne. Everybody knew adoption. But the gift that you've been given through Christ is far greater than being adopted into Caesar's family. You don't have an earthly inheritance. You don't inherit an earthly kingdom. You inherit an eternal kingdom. If you know Christ, you've been adopted into his family by nothing you've done, only through Christ. And then the final purpose, God has chose us for a pur purpose, which is holiness. Adoption is past tense. Those papers are signed, it's done. But holiness, sanctification, growing to look more like Christ, he chose us so that we could be, the text says, holy and blameless in him. Simply, that's just growing to look more like Christ. That's a process, isn't it? Sometimes it's two or three steps forward and one step back. But we have to see from our text that God is invested in your sanctification. God wants you to grow. He loves you where you are, but he does not leave you there. He saved you where you were, but he does not leave you there. God is not passive in your sanctification, but neither are you. A joint effort between the Holy Spirit and our human spirit growing to look more like Christ, something that won't be completed until eternity. But God desires, he's invested. One of his purposes in adopting you was that you'd grow in holiness. Well, congratulations, you survived our deep dive into election. 
That's not the only gift we see in our text. Let's look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let me pause there. Just two observations I want to make from these two verses. First, Paul uses the word riches, he uses the word lavish. It's this picture of, of God's grace, his love, his mercy, literally overflowing. God's not stingy. He's not cheap. The Greek word for lavish literally means showered. His grace overflows. He has an overabundance of his grace. He will never run out of grace. But the other word I want us to consider is redemption. This is a theologically rich word, which means our freedom through the ransom paid through Christ's death. Redemption means our freedom through the ransom paid through Christ's death. And that's the second principle tonight. Praise God because he redeemed us in Christ. Praise God because he redeemed us in Christ. The best way to understand redemption is through an illustration. December 6th, 1973 was just like any ordinary day for Victor Samuelson. He was an Exxon, Mo, or Exxon executive who was working in Campania, Argentina, working as an oil refinery manager. He was a Cleveland native, grew up in Ohio, fellow Midwesterner. But for Victor, on December 6th, everything changed. He was kidnapped by Marxist guerrillas and held ransom for crimes that he'd committed in the country. And the guerrillas demanded a, an extreme payment from ExxonMobil to get him back. He was in captivity 144 days. Can you imagine what that'd be like? Day 50, day 100, day 125, not knowing your fate, not knowing if you'd get, get out alive, not knowing if you'd ever see your family again, ever get back to the States again. Hope would diminish by the day, wouldn't it? Well, Exxon made a settlement with the guerrillas. They paid a ransom payment in fresh $100 bills of $14.2 million. If you put that in today's money, depending on what inflation calculator you use, that's $100 million. Do you think Victor Samuelson could have afforded that? I don't think so. He received the greatest gift of his life, a ransom payment he never could have dreamt of repaying. Now, if you know Christ... You've received an even greater ransom payment, an even greater gift. Through Jesus' violent and sacrificial death, he paid our ransom from slavery to sin. Our debt of sin, our ransom payment is beyond what we ever could dream to afford. The cost of a relationship with God is perfection, a standard that all of us fall drastically short of. None of us are perfect. Thus, earning for ourselves eternal separation from God in a literal lake of fire. That is what all of us deserve. But Jesus took our place. He lived as our substitute, never sinning in thought, in attitude, in action, living the perfect life we never could have dreamed of living. And then Jesus goes to the cross, shedding his blood, dying, taking our place, enduring and paying the debt we never could pay. And then he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death once and for all, that is redemption. Through the faithfulness of Christ, we can be adopted into God's family. Through faith in what Christ has done, we can find redemption and forgiveness because God's grace literally overflows 
for sinners. And now because of our redemption, we are no longer bound by our old master. We've been adopted into God's family as his children, as heirs of an eternal inheritance. Jesus paid the price of our redemption. He paid your ransom price with his own blood. I hope you're beginning to see how redemption and adoption fit together. Praise God because he redeemed us in Christ. Well, consider the final two verses in our text, verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We find our final principle in these last two verses the revelation of God's mystery through Christ. Our third principle, praise God because he revealed his mystery to us in Christ. Praise God because he revealed his mystery to us in Christ. When we're adopted into God's family, he gives us this, this new wisdom and this new insight. That's what we have in verse eight. It's, it's like the, the light switch comes on. We're open, our eyes are open to the understanding of the mystery of the gospel. Did you catch that word mystery? Paul loves the word mystery. He uses it all the time. And I'm convinced that as people, we love the word mystery, or we just love mysteries, period. We like putting ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist, trying to solve a problem that's maybe been there for decades or centuries. In just a couple of weeks, a group of us from young adults are traveling across the pond for a study trip in Israel with Pastor Jeff. We're going to walk uh, in some of the places that Jesus walked. I'm pumped. This is going to be an incredible trip. But I've been doing some studying, a lot of studying, um, and I was reading about the Qumran Caves. The Qumran Caves is where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe what you don't realize is they discovered a lot of other things in the caves besides just the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was this one scroll. They called it the Copper Scroll. It was discovered in 1952. Anybody heard of this? I'd never heard of this until I was doing some reading this week. The Copper Scroll, it had some Hebrew characters on it. It was either in Cave 3 or Cave 11. I can't remember. And they found the scroll, and they realized it's a treasure map. It discloses or identifies 66 cryptic locations in and around the Judean desert and Jerusalem where there is a massive amount of hidden treasure. So since 1952, guess how many of those 66 treasures have been found? Zero. I can see it now. Ready? National Treasure 3. <laughs> Jeff Hines and Sam Deloy. <laughs> that would pay for our whole trip, wouldn't it? No, we love a good mystery. We want to solve the hidden treasure map, don't we? But the Bible's filled with mystery. A lot of us, maybe we could say, are at a disadvantage because we grow up hearing about the Bible, hearing about Jesus. But imagine, imagine what would happen if you had no preconceived notions about the Bible, knew nothing, and you started at the beginning. What question would you ask starting in the first three chapters of Genesis? I know what I'd ask. God, what's your plan to save the world? He creates a perfect world in Genesis 1. Flawless, incredible, it's, it's beautiful, it's very good. And then how long does it take humanity to mess it up? Like three chapters, right? So Adam and Eve, they disobey God's one command, sin enters into the world, and brokenness just starts to permeate God's perfect creation. And as you read the Old Testament, the brokenness, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. It takes like three chapters for there to be the first murder, and it was one brother murdering the other. It took three chapters for murder. 
God, what's your plan to save the world? Well, it starts in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel where God is making this promise to Adam and Eve. It's really to Eve. And he says, someday you're going to have a seed, an offspring, and the serpent, Satan, he's going to bite at the offspring's heel, but, but the seed will crush the serpent's head. Now, if you and I read that with our whole knowledge of the Bible, who's, who's the seed? Jesus. And when does the crushing happen? At the cross. Okay, now put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes. What do, they, what do you think they thought that meant? They were scratching their heads. They had no idea what that meant. But as we go through the Old Testament, God's plan to save the world takes shape. Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham that says the whole world, not the Jewish nation, the whole world will be blessed through you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you land and people. Then there's David. God makes a promise to King David that someday there's going to be an heir who's going to reign on your throne. He'll sit on that throne forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. And then there's the law. God gives this gift of the law to his people, and do they keep it? No, not at all. They demonstrate that they don't just need rules, that they need this heart transformation. We get to passages like Jeremiah 31, who prophesies of this day where God's going to give his people a new heart, where he'll put his spirit within them. And then we see Isaiah, who prophesies of this this suffering servant who's going to come and take away the sin of the world like this lamb that's led to the slaughter. As we get closer and closer to the New Testament, the picture of God's plan to save the world comes into focus. Paul uses the word mystery, the Greek word mysterion, 20 times in his letters. Six of those are in the book of Ephesians. He loves the word mystery, but he identifies it here. If the mystery is God's, what's, God, what's your plan to save the world? What's the answer? The Sunday school answer would be Jesus, right? But it'd be a little more complex than that. Jesus was the plan from the beginning. Jesus is not the backup plan. Jesus is not the alternative. God's grand story of redemption, his plan to save the world through Christ, he wasn't caught off guard by Genesis 3. He wasn't caught off guard by his people's disobedience. Jesus was the plan from the beginning. That's the mystery. God used the old covenant to reveal our brokenness and demonstrate our need for a perfect substitute. The law was not the end goal. The sacrificial system wasn't the end goal. The end goal was Christ. And here for Paul, the mystery, the good news of the gospel is that everyone can be saved through Christ. Not just the Jews, not just the wealthy, Not one gender over the other. All can be saved through Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now are you understanding the implication that this would have for the church in Ephesus? There's division that's rising through the church. There's false teachers. There's this natural competition between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's the wealthy and there's the impoverished. And Paul says, guys, the ground's level. At the foot of the cross, we are all one in Christ. That's the mystery of the gospel, that Jesus came in the world to save sinners, to unite all of us together as one family in Christ. That's the good news. And now who gets to be the proclaimers, the messengers of this mystery? Us. See, we're the good news messengers. We're the good news casters. We get to announce 
to the world God's greatest gifts. So look at Ephesians 3, verse 8. You might have to turn a page. You might not have to. And give you a preview of chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Paul says this. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, like Paul, you and I have the privilege, the opportunity to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. But don't miss verse 10. He says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be proclaimed. But who is it getting proclaimed to? Did you catch that? To the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. Just fast forward to chapter 6. When Paul uses the same phrase, who's he talking about? Not angels. He's actually talking about the demonic spiritual realm. I think that's who Paul has in mind here. That God is going to use the church to proclaim the mystery of the gospel even to our spiritual enemy. Paul reminds us that Satan is not a co-equal of Jesus. They are not in the same plane. They are not in the same league. For us, Satan was defeated 2,000 years ago at the cross. That battle is won. We're fighting a battle that's been won. But for the church in Ephesus, they're in Satan's backyard who still works actively to, to fight against God's plan in the world. They lived in the world of the demonic and the spiritual and the witchcraft and the sorcery. They knew, I'm convinced better than you and I do, the reality of the spiritual war that they were facing. But God was going to use the church at Ephesus to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, to demonstrate the mystery of the gospel, even to the spiritual realm. If God wants to use you to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to the spiritual realm, how much more does he want to use us to proclaim the message of the gospel to people in our world? The devil trembles at a church on mission who understands the power of their resurrected Savior. So as we conclude tonight, I want to talk to two different groups of people. Some of you tonight don't yet have a relationship with Christ. You haven't yet turned away from your sin and believed in Jesus for your salvation. I hope and pray after walking through these gifts together that you are utterly compelled to place your faith in Christ. That you comprehend the, the greatness of the gift that he's given you in Christ. It's almost as if God the Father is knocking on the door of your house with adoption papers in hand that have been signed with the shed blood of his son saying, I want you in my family. Don't say no to his invitation. The greatest gift you can imagine. Don't leave tonight without knowing for sure you've been adopted into God's family. And for those of us who hold the adoption papers in hands, who've experienced the joy of salvation, we have no choice but to praise God. Paul gives us reason after reason to worship God because of the greatness of his gifts. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He adopted us into his family by no merit of our own. Jesus paid our ransom price so the cost of our sin could be wiped away. He wants us to be holy because we are not slaves of sin anymore. He opened our eyes by lavishing on us wisdom and insight. He revealed to us the mystery of the gospel, and he wants us to take that mystery to the world. We have no choice 
but to praise God. And that's exactly how I want to finish tonight. If you're new to this whole church thing, new to this whole young adult thing, what we're about to do is going to feel weird because we're going to sing together and we're going to sing together a cappella. And some of you know this, this short little Christian hymn. It's only 25 words. It's called the doxology. And it was written by a guy named Thomas Ken in the late 1600s. Now, hymnals don't even put the doxology in their hymnals because people just know it. This has been sung as a refrain by God's church for hundreds of years. So tonight, as we finish, I want to invite you to stand. I'll get us started and I'll turn my mic off. And if you don't know it, you can hum along. But the only way we can finish Ephesians 1 is by praising God together. Heavenly Father, we echo those words that we sang. As we reflect on the goodness of your gospel, as we reflect on the greatness of your gifts, we have no choice but to praise you. May our hearts overflow with gratitude for what you've done. Father, if there's anyone here tonight that does not yet know Jesus as their Savior, may today be the day when they place their faith in your son for their salvation. Father, teach us to be your children who are very good at saying thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.